Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think will help improve your overall brain health, help you feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest is somebody who I truly respect, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is a functional medicine physician specializing in muscle-centric medicine. This concept of medicine focuses on the largest organ in the body, skeletal muscle, as the key to longevity. She leverages evidence-based medicine with emerging cutting-edge science to restore metabolism, balance hormones, and create a healthy body composition. Her practice focuses on protein metabolism and optimizing skeletal muscle to regulate aging and improve overall performance. Dr. Lyon brings unparalleled results to her patients with personalized advanced nutritional interventions, metabolic and genetic testing, and behavioral action plans that leave no stone unturned. Dr. Lyon attended the Arizona College of Osteopathic medicine, and is board certified in family practice. She also completed her research fellowship in nutritional science and geriatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. Prior to her foray into medicine, Dr. Lyon was a national semifinalist in Fitness America, a professional fitness model, and nationally ranked figure competitor. She is nationally recognized authority and has spoken at many conferences, including the Institute of Functional Medicine. Dr. Lyon, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Drew, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you on because I truly think you're talking about topics that are even new to myself, and I consider myself pretty uh, on the up and up of what's out there. So we're going to jump right into it. So help our listeners understand When you say the muscle is the largest organ of longevity, what do you mean by that? You know, it's really interesting. Muscle, people think of this as this locomotion, that this is what is responsible for movement and exercise. But what's so fascinating about muscle is that it's actually an organ, and it makes up 45% of the mass in the body, and it it functions as an endocrine organ. So, for example, if you contract your muscle, it secretes something called myocardial. These myokines then become systemic and are anti-inflammatory. They also regulate metabolism in ways that we need, right? So they help glucose uptake, they help carbohydrate metabolism. So in addition to it being an endocrine organ, it's also a metabolic, it's essentially the metabolic sink of the body and responsible for all caloric intake. So when you think about it, muscle is actually the key to longevity, and it is truly the organ of longevity. And so help us understand, you know, is it your background in fitness that brought you to this awareness where it's really, people talk about how important exercise is, people talk about how important maintaining healthy muscle mass as you age is, but you're taking it a whole step further. Where did these insights come from that you realize how important uh, muscle is to the longevity process? That's a, that's a really good question, and it allows me to highlight my mentor. So I did my undergraduate training at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and my training was under Dr. Donald Lehman, who the research people in, that are listening will know. He is one of the world-leading experts in protein metabolism. And the key around health and really everything I learned was around 
protein and muscle health. And really, you know, we did studies that looked at body composition and, uh, you know, women between 45 and 55 in terms of how they aged, you know, and also I was an athlete. So really the perspective of health was always about muscle. It was never about over fat. So I think in our society, we talk about adiposity and everyone focuses on the problem, the problem of being over fat when really that's, it's so much more effective to focus on the solution, which is about being under muscled. So it's not about over fat, it's about under muscled. So as I went through undergraduate and then residency and then fellowship, the perspective was all about how do we optimize body composition to optimize metabolism, to optimize brain health and to optimize longevity. So let's talk about obesogenic sarcopenia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, obesogenic sarcopenia. <laughs> obesogenic yes. sarcopenia. Don't ask me how to spell it. <laughs> Can you break that apart and help explain to our listeners what this term is and why it's important to our health and our aging process? Yes. So when we think about aging, there is something called sarcopenia that happens. And sarcopenia is defined, it was defined early on as the poverty of flesh. So we've all seen our parents get older and we see them lose muscle tissue. They essentially shrink. And that is what, what it looks like, what sarcopenia looks like. And it's a decrease of muscle mass and a decrease of muscle function. And what happens as we age, there's this natural aging process and we lose about 1% a year of our muscle mass and one to 3% of their, our strength as we age. And that's because we lose these uh, neuro innervations, the, the nervous innervations in the muscle fiber. So sarcopenia is typically defined as this disease of aging, but when we think about it, there's all these contributors to sarcopenia. So sarcopenia, as we think about it as the poverty of the flesh, when we think about the causes of sarcopenia, there's so many causes. One of those is low-grade low inflammation and increased oxidative stress and things that happen with aging, like a decreased mitochondrial functioning. But one of the interesting things that happens, and this will tie it back into obesogenic sarcopenia, is this increase in fat accumulation within the muscle. So it's actually intralipids within the muscle cells. And that actually affects their contractility. So in essence, it's not just visceral adiposity, but it's muscle adiposity that starts well before you see it uh, on your body, like externally. So is it so sort of like people think of like muscle as being completely built of muscle and they think of fat as being completely separate of fat. Am I hearing that within the muscle, you're talking about a phenomenon where you have fat developing within? Exactly. So when we think about sarcopenia, it's really the combination of decrease in muscle and decrease in muscle mass, muscle strength in the presence of adiposity, of being overweight. And we know that obesity is this huge epidemic. So now what's happened is before, um, when obesity wasn't such a problem, sarcopenia was a problem. Uh, our elders got older, they had uh, low protein diets. They weren't using, they weren't using resistance exercise and they were just sarcopenic, but they weren't necessarily obese. But now we're seeing compounded problems. We're seeing obesogenic sarcopenia, which we typically think of as an older person disease, but this is starting in your thirties and forties because of the kind of domesticated lifestyle that we lead. So it's really this combination of both. So 
this being the Broken Brain Podcast, one of the reasons I was fascinated to have you on here and talk about this was the connection that this plays with uh, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, but, but even Alzheimer's and other brain issues. So can you connect that gap for the listeners here on how, how all this is related to our brain health? Yes. So when you think about brain health, and I did my fellowship in geriatrics, and um, I ran a comprehensive memory and aging clinic at WashU. That's one of the, the tasks as a fellow. And it was really interesting. So what we found was that individuals with increasing BMI and increasing waistline had lower brain volume. So what that means was the more adiposity, the more over fat one is, the lower their brain volume is. So essentially, Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes of the brain. And when we think about how to prevent Alzheimer's, how to improve cognition, it all starts with optimal body composition. And in fact, it starts with optimizing muscle mass because muscle is the largest organ in the body, but it's the metabolic regulator. So what that means is carbohydrates, we know that carbohydrates in excess are toxic. We know that carbohydrates in excess to the brain are also toxic, hence type 3 diabetes of the brain. In order to keep all of that in check, the key to that is optimizing body composition and muscle mass. So, so much emphasis, especially with the modern day fitness movement that's out there, uh, kind of put us, at least in Western culture, on this focus of you know, weight loss, weight loss, weight loss. It's all about weight loss. And people just thought that fat is this... Um, thing that you have excess amount of and you just want to look good so you want to lose fat then later on obviously we understood that fat can increase your risk for things like uh, diabetes you know all all these other areas that it's not just about looking slim but now uh, we're evolving the conversation even further and where people think of typically as like hey you want to have muscle to be fit and to look good and to do these things we're now taking that a lot further and saying, wait a second, muscle is a crucial part yes. of this aging process. It's like a whole paradigm shift. Yes, and it's probably the most important. The most important thing that people can do is to maintain their muscle. If they want to maintain their brain, you have to maintain your muscle. Because when you think about Alzheimer's and you think about cognitive impairment and you think about longevity, the Excess inflammation and low-grade inflammation all adds to these cognitive issues. So muscle is anti-inflammatory. So when you contract the muscle, it releases something called myokines. These myokines lower systemic inflammation. Fascinating. So let's talk about that for a second and, and how crucial of a role this is. As you mentioned, as people get older, they if they're not putting attention into it, they're losing uh, muscle mass as they age. So what are the ways to prevent that from happening and, and make it a priority in your life? That This is going to be an essential take-home point for your listeners and something they can all incorporate. So as we age, something happens to the muscle tissue called anabolic resistance. And what this means is it means that the muscle itself has impaired signaling. So it's much easier to put on and maintain muscle when you're younger. As your hormones change, as the signaling in your body changes, it, it becomes impaired. So in order to protect your muscle, there's two ways to do it. Number one, my favorite topic of all time, dietary protein. And number two, resistance training. And some very practical aspects on how to 
keep and maintain your muscle is through dietary protein. And it has to be 30 as you age. So if you are over the age of 40, and that's probably a little young, but let's just say 40, you need 35 grams of high quality protein every time you eat. And that would typically be three times a day. So you're stimulating what we call muscle protein synthesis three times a day. That is absolutely essential, especially as you age. You cannot eat the way that you did when you were younger. You must increase your protein intake. And it's interesting, the RDA says 0.8 grams per kilogram per pound per body weight. That's not enough. And they, the protage group put together a census recommendation. And what we now know for aging adults is the protein requirements are 1.2 to 2.0 grams per kilogram. So there's so much in there that I know everybody wants to talk about. So I'm going to ask the questions that everybody's <laughs> thinking. Let's just start off with protein and talk about that. Um, there's been so much conversations about the role of how often excess protein, at least if you're looking out there and watching uh, the documentaries on Netflix about how we're a society that has too much protein in our diet. So let's start there. Where does that idea come from and why is that not correct in the context of what you're talking about here? So the science of protein, it's really interesting. Protein is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. Essentially, it is the most controversial macronutrient because it has a face and it's very emotional for people. Nobody argues about carbohydrates. Nobody argues about fat. But when it comes to protein, there's a tremendous variability in terms of the emotional pull to what that means and how it actually colors what our perception of what is too much. So the RDA recommends 0.8 grams per kilogram. That The average female eats around 60 grams of protein a day. And we know that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis to protect aging, and all of these consensus studies and these position papers have come out to tell us that that is entirely too low and that this is a huge epidemic, sarcopenia, falls, obesogenic sarcopenia. So basically, the recommendation and the idea that we eat too much protein comes from 1940, from World War II um, protein recommendations that are extrapolated data from pig farmers. So just as we were incorrect about carbohydrates when we did the food guide pyramid, and then we went to fats and we were incorrect that fat was bad for us, we are also incorrect that protein is bad for us. And that is going to be the next frontier when individuals start talking about macronutrients. It's just incorrect. The science is extraordinarily clear that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, you need 35, 30, about 30 grams three times a day for a minimum to maintain your body weight. And that's not if you're sick or if you're old or if you've injured yourself. Um, so as Americans, we don't eat too much. But what we do do is we eat too much protein at once. So typically we have a sub-threshold amount of protein at breakfast. Say maybe we have one or two eggs, which is sub-threshold because that's 12 grams of protein. And unless you actually hit that threshold of 30 grams to, turn, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, then you'll go through the day eating suboptimal amounts and then maybe you have a large protein meal and now you've stimulated muscle protein synthesis one time a day. If you do that over a lifetime, you will lose muscle tissue and gain body fat. 
Now, let's talk about protein and exactly the sources and where they come from. When it comes to getting this protein in and achieving muscle synthesis, are all proteins equal um, or there are some misconceptions that are out there? You know, it's really interesting. When you look at the back of a label, you, you see fat is number one and it breaks down to cholesterol, trans fats, saturated fats. And then you look at carbohydrates and that breaks down to fiber and sugar. And then you get to the last one and you see protein and it just says protein. But what's interesting is protein is made up of amino acids and the amino acid profile for each food is totally different. So for example, the amount of quinoa it would take to equal the amount of um, chicken in one chicken breast for this 30 grams, it would be six cups of quinoa to equal one chicken breast when we're talking about getting enough protein. So plant protein typically has half the uh, essential, the branch chain amino acids, and those are the amino acids necessary for muscle protein since for triggering that pathway to start. So plant protein typically has 50% uh, lower the amount. So for example, if you look at a hemp protein shake, and it says 30 grams. That 30 grams, the muscle only sees 15 of that. So that would not be ideal for maintaining your muscle mass to optimize brain health. And does, so does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And, and so off the back of that, you know, we've seen so many conversations around longevity. I think, you know, recently Dr. Hyman had uh, Dan Butner on uh, from the Blue Zones uh, book and project, and you know he talks a lot about how a lot of the world's longest living societies, uh, not to sing a lot of his work, but just to sort of understand what you're talking about in context. Um, you know they they are primarily plant based, and the ones who eat fish, it's kind of like a condiment, a part of their diet. Uh, so, is what are your thoughts on that? Not to no, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'd and love to hear your thoughts on that. So the, I'm really glad you brought that up. And so there's some confounding concepts there. So those individuals, so here's the key, right? The key is that if you are moving an extraordinarily large amount, if you're walking all over and you're farming and you're moving, you actually need less protein. But we live in a domesticated environment. So we aren't doing those things. And the only other way to stimulate that tissue is through dietary protein. The people in the blue zones are incredibly active. They are moving all day long. We don't do that. And so what's happened is that we have to make up for it somehow, right? So there's always checks and balances. There's always an equilibrium that has to be found to optimize health. So that's why we need more protein. So for example, when you do resistance training, after you have resistance training, you've increased blood flow to the muscle, you actually can get away with less protein to have the same effect. So that's where the, the interesting part about the blue zone is, is that these people live lifestyles that are completely different than what we're living today. So, so basically you're saying the more sedentary you are, the more actual protein you need, which is kind of like blowing everybody's minds here because you think, you know, the more you work out or the more you move, that's the people who are needed, who are of the need of consuming more protein in their diet. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. So unless if you're an athlete and you're looking for recovery, then you will have to increase your protein. 
But the truth is exactly what you said. The more sedentary you are, the more protein you need. For example, in bed rest, so I've had patients that have gotten injured, those people, the primary source of nutrients for them needs to be protein. So yes, the less you move, you have to make up for it for the signaling by increasing your dietary protein. So walk me a little bit through uh, your day, right? Especially as somebody who uh, is super into fitness with the background and competitive training, uh, with where you are right now at your age and your diet, how much protein are you consuming and what does it look like throughout the day to achieve the health goals that uh, you're trying to achieve? So what I do, I actually time-restricted feed. Um, that is amazing for brain health. So time-restricted feeding or chrononutrition. So my meals typically start at 11 a.m. and they end at 7. And I have about three hours in between and each meal has around 30 grams of protein or so. could be 35. And I use high quality meats. I typically use ground meats. I use ground bison. Um, I eat a ton of greens. I eat good fat, but not too much fat. And um, it's pretty simple. And it's the same thing. It's very consistent every day. So it's greens and proteins. I'm glad you brought up the concept of the greens because sometimes when people talk about getting a lot of proteins, there's this mental conception in their head that it's like you're trying to eat a carnivore diet. But you're really specifically saying it's not that we're going to deprioritize vegetables and greens. We're still keeping those quantities high. It's just that we're simply trying to include more protein to create that muscle synthesis. It's it's a must, right? So um, people have to do it if they want to maintain their body composition and even if they want to lose weight and they want to maintain their brain health. The, it's the most important thing that they can do. You know, it's really interesting. It's good for other things. So protein isn't just about brain health. Protein, for example, if someone has high blood pressure, you know, arginine is a precursor, which is an amino acid, which, which is the precursor for nitric oxide, which causes vasodilation. Glutamine is um, necessary for gut health. So there's so many other reasons other than muscle to make sure that the protein needs are high. So I have a ton of patients that have parasites, right? Individuals with parasites or GI issues need more protein because uh, for GI healing, your body extracts those protein. So yes, so you want to focus on protein, but of course you want to balance that with greens. This is not a carnivore diet at all. What it is is, and it's really interesting, it's not a high protein diet either. And if we could shift people away from the conception that 90 to 100 grams as baseline is a high protein diet. It's not. That's a normal protein diet. That's an optimal. That's just a baseline. That's not even optimal. So it's really shifting the paradigm of thinking because, again, it's not about being over fat. It's about being under muscle. So, you know, this is about brain health. And, you know, in order to protect the trajectory of your cognition and your locomotion and to prevent falls and poor aging, You need to go through periods of time where your protein is optimal and your resistance training, you're utilizing that to then optimize muscle protein synthesis because as you age, it becomes harder and harder to grow new muscle. You can hypertrophy the muscle, but in order to, it's very difficult to grow new muscle tissue. And you see- The more you have in the tank, the better. Super fascinating. And you see this, you know, when you travel around the world, last year I was in uh, Kenya uh, where I was born and I was uh, visiting for the first time since I was born and I was spending time with um, uh, 
the Samburu tribe who live in northern Kenya. And they're a tribe that primarily, for the last about 800,000 years, they're no, uh, sorry, 800 years, they're a nomadic tribe that travels and grazes with their cattle. They'll set up shop, they'll stay in an area for about six months, and then once the grass is grazed, they'll move on to another area. And their diet uh, primarily consists of um, milk, is what they're uh, drinking. And then uh, they have meat um, a few times uh, a month in sort of celebratory occasions. Uh, they are, all of them, like completely ripped and they're moving all day long, all the time. They're constantly on the move. They're constantly on the go from one place uh, to another. And you see that their body composition, as they get older, you might have a Samburu tribe member. They don't always know their exact age because they don't keep track of that. But you see somebody who generally is probably in their 60s, and they have the muscle mass of somebody who would be in their 30s over here. And that's amazing. That's also another good point that you bring up. We don't actually have to age the way that we think that we do, right? So aging begins in the mind, right? Become We become less active. We feel as if, oh, I'm just getting older. My metabolism is slowing down, all of these things. But I... I don't think that that's correct. And you you highlight a really important point is that you've seen it. You've seen it actually be incorrect that we don't actually have to age the way that we do. So let's talk about that a little bit more because I think people have a lot of expectations. And one of the expectations is that as people age, they're going to expect to put on weight because that's just what happens to everybody. It's a natural part of aging. So where does that idea come from? Why are people seeing that around in society? And then what's the alternative or the possibility that you know, you're presenting with? So that's um, an interesting focus and really important. So there are things that do happen as you age that is inevitable, right? I mean, we do see that there is a decline in muscle mass. We do see that there is a decrease in strength, but it doesn't mean that it has to happen as early as we think it does. So in our society, I mean, there are hormonal cha changes that happen. There's a decrease in testosterone, um, an increase in estrogen and the, or I'm sorry, a, you know, uh, favor towards estrogen and a decrease in progesterone, which then causes visceral fat storage and things like that. Um, but because I'm a functional medicine physician and, you know, we try to think of the big picture, there are there are other ways to combat those issues. So there's bioidentical hormones. You can keep things in optimal ranges. The other thing that you have to really think about is, are you training hard enough? Going out for a walk to prevent this decline in muscle and these decrease in hormones, you have to be really diligent. Unless you're living a tribal life or unless you're living in a blue zone, you have to be really diligent on your lifestyle your diet and your training, as well as your stress, and you do and keeping low levels of inflammation. So, it's it's not that you have to put on weight as you age. You have to be moving, and the effort has to be there. The focus and the intensity of the training must remain, right? Because either you use it or you lose it. Same with the brain. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think. I don't. I don't I think we have to change our perspective. So uh, to unpack that a little bit further, because you're working with people of uh, all ages uh, and for your patients who are a little bit uh, older, who are starting to notice a decline and are coming to you with other health issues, and you know that uh, they don't move. I mean, as a society as a whole, we literally went from movement being a part of our just daily existence because we had to, 
to now we have to actually create time for it to counteract uh, modern society and what position that it puts us in. So what type of activity is the activity that you recommend to uh, your patients that are going through this process who literally are at square one and besides going on a walk here or there, don't have other forms of movement in their life? So the it's really interesting. The American College of Sports Medicine has a recommended out guideline for maintaining health, and it's pretty rigorous. And one of the things that they recommend is, so they, they have four categories. They have resistance, flexibility, cardio, and the neuromotor, and that would be, you know, like proprioception. So for my patients, they all start with resistance training because, again, muscle is the organ of longevity. And it's interesting, when you use exercise, you increase something, something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. And we know that when you use resistance training, and I recommend two to three times per week, I'll be really precise here, two to three times a week, two to four sets of each exercise, eight to 12 reps. Eight to 12 reps means you put in effort. And by doing this, you can stimulate your muscle protein synthesis. And of course, you have protein right after you, you exercise. But it also increases this BDNF, which improves neuronal function and it helps repair damaged DNA. So everybody starts with resistance exercise. That's number one. Number two is I actually have them track their movement, how much they're moving every day, because you can't change what you don't track. So typically the recommendation is 10,000 steps. I like to see my patients with a minimum of 15,000. So they need to really be moving. And a lot of them are doing well under 10,000. And then, of course, there's cardio, because we know that that's important for mitochondria, and we know that mitochondria decreases as they age. And that should be five times a week, 30 to 60 minutes of you know, moderate intensity. You have to stress the body in order for it to continue to do what it does best. Now, when you're sitting with a patient, you're explaining this to them, and they're, this is not a part of their program. Maybe they played a little bit of sports when they were younger. What, what do you find are the tools... Um, and, and the tips to get over that belief system that I'm just not an athlete. I'm just not, you know, this is, sounds like a lot. Like, how do people begin? And are there any resources that are out there, um, you know, as somebody who, you know, my parents, coming from an Indian background, yes. you know, my parents and my mom uh, did not have a lot of movement except for light walking after meals and things like that. So yes. getting her to a place of having exercise as a regular part of her uh, life, it's almost like there's this mental barrier that she's trying to overcome where it's just like, I don't identify as being somebody who can do that. So for those who are in that position, what can they begin to do and look at? This is a great place where community comes in. And I know that you're really big into community. And this is where really bringing in outside support and doing it as a team and having friends and doing classes together just to start. So there's silver sneakers for people that are older, which are exercise classes. And then there's also tons of classes available at gyms and um, strengthening and toning. It's a great place to start for someone who's never done it. And they're usually supervised pretty well. You know, they can look around for something good. And then it's, it's not necessarily making them feel that they're an athlete, but then it becomes a social thing. And also having an accountability partner, we really want to uphold 
another person. So, you know, if you know that you don't want to do it and you know it's scary, of course, it's always good to do things that make us uncomfortable. But then you get a teammate and you say, okay, so I'm going to make this deal and we're going to do this three times a week and we're going to do this together. And then you create accountability. And then after that, and probably even before that, when I sit with my patients, I ask their why. So if you anchor their why intense enough, they can do anything. So if it's for their family, if they want to be healthy and viable for their family, or they really want to get the best out of their last couple, you know, their last 20 years or something, by really focusing on what inspires them and the reason for doing it, the rest fall into place. I want to go back to a few things around protein that I think are really helpful because um, it's always nice to break things down. You know, one of the common things that you hear, and I don't know if you've ever explored a bunch in your diet, but there was a period of time where I was vegan. Obviously, we have people who are listening to this podcast that are vegan, and I have some questions about things that they might be asking. Uh, but it's uh, this common sort of thing that you hear. It's like, uh, we emphasize protein too much. You know, it's like, do you ever ask a gorilla where it gets a protein? It eats leaves, it eats fruits, it eats this. What's the difference between us as human beings and like when people are talking about, do you ever ask a cow where it gets its protein from? Do you ever ask other animals where it gets its protein from? Can you break that down for people who are looking for that distinction who often talk about just, we prioritize protein too much and then turn to those examples as a way to explain them? So we, it's interesting, we don't actually prioritize protein enough in the correct ways. When you look at a cow, they have a different GI tract. When you look at a gorilla, it also has a different ability to synthesize branched-chain amino acids. We know that their microbiome is different, and their microbiome, you know, some microbiomes of these animals can actually break down to provide the essential amino acids. As humans, we can't do that well Maybe 2% of the population can do that. There's some preliminary studies coming out, but it's very clear that humans need a certain amount of branched chain amino acids, and it's very well studied that we need, it's it, one of the branched chains, the, the key branch chain is called leucine. And we know that you need two and a half grams of leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. That is, you know, been in the literature for 30 years gorillas and these other animals don't need that. Their, their capacity to metabolize protein is different and their amino acid needs are different. So, um, and on a daily basis, sometimes they're eating upwards of a third of their body weight to sometimes, you know, more than that. So you literally have animals that are eating all day long to get that level of macronutrient intake. And then of course, exactly. uh, you know, in the book Sapiens and other things that are out there, Michael Pollan talks about this. And in his books, there's a strong evidence that a big part of the evolution of the human brain that allows us to literally have the level of cognitive function that we have as human beings came when we switched from eating a diet that was focused on that to more concentrated concentrated sources of nutrients, including protein. Yes, it's true um, that those those are defining moments. I mean, we've, we are evolutionary designed, actually. But you bring up vegans, and actually, I tried being vegan uh, when I was in college, and I, ha I do have vegan patients. And what we do is we create a plant-based diet, but then we augment branched-chain amino acids. So we're very careful about giving them protein sources, whether it's from beans or tempeh, 
or you can have, there's rice pea mixes that have a perfect amount of branched chain amino acids. So there's, you know, we're evolving ways to do it, but it has to be done very mindfully. So for example, if you have vegan patients in each meal that they're eating, or I would say three times a day, they should add in a branched chain amino acid to complete that profile. And then they would get the same, the same response and not have to eat the protein. They're the animal-based proteins. And, and any uh, favorite brands, because we're all about getting practical tips, any favorite brands that you've seen out there? Uh, let's talk about for vegans first, vegans and vegetarians, any favorite brands of either uh, protein powders or products or these branched chain amino acids that people should be looking out for that you know, have been vetted uh, yes. by you? Yes. So there's a, so Metagenics has something called perfect protein for the vegans and vegetarians. And it's a mix of rice pea, which has an excellent breakdown of amino acids. So that is something excellent for a shake if they don't want to have a meal and it really does the job. There's a company called First Form. They have a clean, if your people are open to whey proteins and don't have sensitivities, they make a great whey protein, which is you can actually get away with less calories to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So that whey protein is amazing. Pure Encapsulations makes a protein powder and uh, Douglas Labs makes a product clean, K-L-E-A-N. All of those are great, great to use. And they shouldn't have branch chains on it by themselves because that would be like if you were to start a car, you kind of start the metabolic process and you don't have any gas in the tank, so nothing happens. So it should be with a meal or a post-workout. So they shouldn't just be having it during the day. That would not be optimal. They should combine it with a meal or post-workout. And what have you seen, you know, because you have patients across the board, just for anybody that's under consuming on protein, regardless of age, and you start bringing it back in and you start bringing in the movement, forget about, I mean, talk about body composition, but what are the other things that you see that people often don't equate to being related to having more muscle mass and the right amount of uh, protein in their diet? Like what improvements do you notice with the patients you work with? Hands down energy, they feel a hundred times better. So if you think about it, if you're protein is not correct, then it means that you're over consuming either fats or carbohydrates. And I have a lot of women in my practice, and that means that their blood sugar is up and down all day long. Hands down, when I put patients on a optimal protein diet, they have so much more energy. They they are so much sharper uh, mentally. They feel less depressed because we know that protein is a precursor for neurotransmitters like serotonin. They find that their gut health improves because we know that protein is essential for, for gut health in terms of heat, like a leaky gut. They find that their immunity, they're all of a sudden not getting sick or not getting cold as much. We know that protein feeds the immune system. And when they come back, we measure their inflammatory markers. Again, I'm very data-driven. They get pre and post labs. They're, all their inflammatory markers are down. And the byproduct is they lose weight. And I track all their muscle tissue with minimal effort. They all put on muscle tissue and lose body fat. That's incredible. And I think the key component is, I mean, this is in, you know, somebody doesn't have to take your word for this. If there's listeners that are out here that are feeling like they can identify by some of the problems or, or symptoms that you're talking about earlier and want to experience some of the gains that you're just talking about, they could literally go out and try this, you know, increase their amount of uh, protein in their diet from the right sources and the amounts and the grams that you were talking about earlier. 
and notice the difference. How often do you notice uh, a change? Obviously, you know, we want people to be eating a clean, unprocessed diet. In yeah. addition to that, those things are all important. But uh, how often and how soon do, you know, everybody's different, every patient is different. Of course, this is not medical advice for sure. Right. But how long does it take to begin to increase your protein intake before people start to notice some uh, shifts that are happening inside the body? So the next day, so typically within a week, they're feeling way better because they've now balanced their blood sugar. So just from a day, from a moment to moment, from a meal to meal perspective, when you think about protein, it's about protein quality, distribution over the, over the day, and protein timing. So quality, distribution, and timing. Those are the three components to really optimizing protein in the, in the diet. When you get that correctly and you start minimum 30 grams three times a day, the next day, all of a sudden they find that they're not getting that afternoon crash and they feel better. And then by the end of the first week, they all come back and they, they forget how terrible they felt when they first came in. So within a week, they start to feel better. Initially, there's a lot of sugar crave, you know, carbohydrate cravings if you're predominantly carbohydrate driven. But if your protein is high enough and again, you're eating your greens and a little bit of good fat, then you find that you can really change your behavior patterns and you, they just feel so much better. So yeah, it's within a week. I want to talk about the brain and come back to the brain and think of the brain as uh, you know, you talk about the brain as a muscle. Um, Help us understand how we can tone the brain just the same way that we would think about toning the muscle and, and how does, you know, obesity off of that impact our overall brain health? So there's a direct correlation with increasing obesity and decreasing brain health. It's a direct correlation. The the larger your waistline, the larger your waist circumference, the lower your brain volume. We know that Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they're all different expressions of the same metabolic dysregulation. So if you have issues with obesity or even overweightness, you know that your brain is impaired. You know, there's tons of uh, evidence out there shows decreased cognitive function, decreased executive function, you know, memory, day-to-day tasks. So when I think of your brain as a muscle, it's always important to do something that makes you uncomfortable, to not do the things that you've always done. And when you think about that in terms of exercise and movement, it's really learning a new skill. And it's really great to learn something that's kinesthetic. So whether it's dancing or yoga or tai chi or something that you don't typically do but learning a new motor skill that involves thinking really helps exercise your brain by doing the same thing over and over again every day um, you don't grow so your brain is a muscle it requires resistance it requires effort it requires things that challenge it so that's essential and it's essential as you age for brain health to do these things. I want to continue on that thread and and help us uh, you know give our listeners we're all about practical tips we're all about actionable things that people can do can you give us three more tips practical tips that anyone can start with today to start making changes in their muscle mass and in their overall bone health if if they're feeling like this isn't an area that they've given a lot of attention to So if I was going to give people we said three more tips. We talked about the protein. We talked about protein quality, quantity, and distribution. The first tip I would say is if you don't want to eat protein at every meal is that you get breakfast correct, whatever time that is. You get 35 to 40 grams of protein at your very first meal. This sets you up for metabolic flexibility so you're not storing fat the whole day. 
your inflammation is low, you've set up your metabolism correctly, that is the first thing that I would recommend. Number two, set a goal for yourself and commit to what you're gonna do. I would say if you are going to choose resistance training, which is what everyone should be doing, start with something, write it down, get an accountability partner and say, I'm gonna train two days a week. Doesn't have to be three, but that you set up a target so that you can hit it. The third thing I would say is to invest in a high quality protein supplement so that you have it just in case, whether it's a whey protein or a rice pea blend. Do something that makes you uncomfortable, both physically and mentally, every day. Mm, I like that one. Dr. Lyon, this is such incredible information, and I really want to thank you for introducing you know, what I think for a vast majority of listeners here is something that they've never heard uh, other practitioners or experts out there talk about and, and breaking it down in a way that really makes sense. I can say even for my own uh, life, you know, I've always active, played sports. I grew up vegetarian background. And as I got further into functional medicine, I really, through laboratory testing and my own discovery, realized that I was significantly under eating on uh, protein. And when I started including that in my diet, including working out regularly, I immediately felt that energy shift. And that's coming from somebody who didn't have any diseases, didn't have any major issues that were going on, didn't have major bouts of fatigue. So it's not just something that I think that people who are aging uh, and are worried about that and are losing muscle mass, I think anybody can really benefit from um, this information. I applaud you for you know putting it out there and I'm just waiting for your book so I can start hanging it out to people. Working on it, I am working on it. <laughs> In the meantime, while we all anxiously wait for your book to come out one day, can you share more with listeners here how they can find out more about you and, and work with you. If they want to dive deeper and they want to work with you as a patient, how do they uh, find out more about uh, how they can do that? Absolutely. So they can go to my website, which is www.drgabriellelyon.com, and they can find a link to my practice. I have a practice called the Ash Center on 61st and 5th in New York City. And they can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active there. And that's Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And again, Facebook with the same name. That's how you find me. What I love about your Instagram is I love uh, one of my favorite posts, post series of posts is that you'll take uh, screenshots because there's so much science to back up everything that you've shared. So many studies, you'll take a screenshot of the study and then you'll talk about the summary and the interesting points that we can take away from that. Um, we'll be sure to link to a bunch of those in the show notes. So I, I applaud... Uh, in addition to all your experiences and, and your clinical practice, you're big on the research component and you're always sharing the latest information out there for people who want uh, all the evidence to back it up, which there's tons of. Yes. And it's super important. You should always vet your sources. There's definitely a difference between opinion and science. And if it's my opinion, I will always tell listeners it's my opinion. And then if it's evidence-based and it's and has come out in a ton of research over the years, and that's hard to argue. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see everybody's heads spinning already. Uh, of course, we'll link to your articles, your websites out there. Is there uh, um, additional information or resources that you might suggest? Like, is there a resource or a, a guide or a book that you often give to your patients when it comes to, um, you know, how to begin working out and start resistance training 101, or is there a fitness uh, uh, 
uh, chain or place that is kind of like your go-to to refer people to begin down that path? Well, I have a series of trainers that I use. So um, I typically connect them with trainers that I trust. And if people want to reach out to me, I'm happy to connect them. I have Kara Killian. She's in. She's actually a grad student at uh, Cal State Fullerton. She is muscle physiology. So she's someone that I always use and writes online programming, and then they can take it to their trainer. But in terms of that, the American College of Sports Medicine has really good evidence. And that's that's pretty much it. And then, of course, if people want to get started on protein, they can download my protocol for free uh, from my website. Yeah, it's called the Lion Protocol. You can visit uh, drgabriellion.com. Check out the show notes. We'll link to it. And you can follow the protocol there. Dr. Lyon, thank you so much for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast and for also being in our series. You were definitely a hit with all the different information. You were talking about how uh, exercise improves overall brain health. If you haven't seen Dr. Lyon in the Broken Brain series, you can just go to brokenbrain.com and sign up for it and check it out there. Uh, We super appreciate you being here with us and sharing your knowledge and information. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.